Welcome to the News and Views podcast by the Fintech Times. Established in 2016, the Fintech Times is a global multimedia news outlet centered around the world's first leading fintech newspaper. We report on the latest and brightest ideas from the fintech world. Follow the conversation using hashtag TFT News and Views and follow us at the Fintech Times. Hi, I'm Polly Jean Harrison, Features Editor at the Fintech Times. Hi, I'm Francis Bignall and I'm a journalist at the Fintech Times. Hi, I'm Tyler Smith and I'm a journalist at the Fintech Times. Hello, hello, hello and welcome back once again to the Fintech Times News and Views podcast. It is a brand new week. Uh, February is inching closer and closer to being over, which just seems crazy. But Tyler, Francis, how are you guys doing? Uh, Francis, how are you? Hey, Polly. Hey, Tyler. Yeah, no, I'm not too bad. It's just, a, you know, another week really in the business and it's going quite well. It's You're right. It's mad how quickly February's gone. It feels like only last week was really New Year. So it, time just flies. Time really does fly. Um, and yeah, no, I'm, I'm very well. How are you guys doing? I'm uh, yeah, I'm doing really well, uh, guys. Thank you very much. I've I've caught up on all my sleep and my stories from from Saudi Arabia. So a little bit of a calmer week this week. How are you doing, Polly? No, I'm uh, peachy keen, really, just cracking on, getting through. Looking forward to uh, some nicer sunny days ahead. So it's all good. Um, but guys, what what are we going to be talking about this week? What articles have you brought, uh, Tyler? Well, uh, Polly, roses are red, violets are blue. Banks collected 3.6 billion in FX fees during 2022. I've just stolen the catch line from uh, my latest story, which is from Wise. So it should be really, really interesting. What about you guys? What have you got on the table today? Sounds very, very cool. Uh, mine is also about banks, uh, but how Tink has found customers would swap diff- to the little. How Tink has found that customers would swap banks if they thought it would help. Uh, with the cost of living crisis. Um, and Francis, what are you bringing today? Just quickly, Tyler, did you come up with that or is that part of the, the press release? No, no, no. It's from the uh, from their like, advertising for it. And I thought, oh, I wish I'd written that. but I, I was going to no, say, if you've come up with that, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so my article this week is going to be on Livemore's social bond framework to combat ageist barriers to lending. Awesome. So I feel like we've got a really cool mix of articles today. Um, why don't we do like a, a banking sandwich and go Tyler Francis, me or me Francis. Tyler, do you want to go first or should I go first? I'll, I'll you know, I'll kick us off. You'll kick us mind. off. Fabulous. I don't you mind. You know, sometimes you have to do these things. Uh, well, thank you very much, guys. Well, this is uh, going to be talking about the latest report from the uh, London-based fintech Wise, and specifically, it was looking at uh, foreign exchange fees for small businesses. So this is when a small business uh, does business overseas, either in Europe or internationally or whatever. Uh, and it found that banks last year took 3.6 billion from from UK small businesses in foreign exchange fees. Uh, now that sounds quite a lot and it sounds even more concerning when you think that as a whole the the uh the whole sort of uk business community was charged was charged 4.2 billion so there's a 600 million pound discrepancy between the fees that small businesses were incurring and the fees that larger businesses were incurring. Now, to me on the offset, this this shows me that small businesses are really, really struggling either to adhere to the uh, FX guidelines that their banks are using 
or that they're and or that they are are highly dependent on banks to facilitate this sort of foreign transaction and in the process of of incurred a load of fees which really isn't good it's it's quite an astonishing figure when you think about it um but yeah as i as i told francis they've done this huge like campaign where you know roses are red violets are blue uh, as I started with, um, and that's sort of been like the whole campaign of the report. They've really marketed it really well. Uh, and just to side note that this report was actually um, marketed in Canary Wharf. So I think that's quite appropriate. But it it really looks at more of why this is happening. Uh, and it looks specifically at two pieces of regulation that is causing this to happen. The first one was the cross-border payment regulation two, which uh, many of you might know was introduced in April 2020 to implement wider transparency of banks' conversion uh, costs. However, according to Wise's latest report, banks often ignore or circumvent the regulation by hiding fees in hidden markup exchange rates. Uh, Beyond this, it also considers the payment service regulations, uh, and while these regulations are under review, the, that too sort of tries to cultivate a higher level of transparency around these sorts of costs. However, the payment service regulations does have a little bit of a feature called the corporate opt-out feature, which essentially allows banks to sort of sideline businesses that they don't want to deal with. Now, I think the first to be sidelined is going to be small businesses, right? Um, so it's it's really sort of a weakness in the regulation and it turns its attention to the UK watchdog, the Financial Conduct Authority, and it just urges it to to sort of enforce the rules better and provide additional guidance. It, it really sort of says, you know, you've got to make this really, really transparent uh, for, for SMBs, for small businesses. And thirdly, it says it really would like to see an end of the corporate opt-out feature, uh, which it says penalises SMBs for no good reason. And overall, I think this is really limiting small businesses' ambitions to to pursue like a global presence. This they did a little bit of a survey in their report and found that uh, the cost and the lack of convenience in these in these surfaces is a major deterrent to going global. So I think that Wise has released a really really interesting report here, and it's shown that. It's shown a lot of things, but mainly that SMBs are struggling to go global because they're struggling with foreign exchange fees. Uh, And I just really want to get your take on this. I mean, do you think that it's down to the regulator? Do you think that it's not down to the banks and the banks have been clear on what is going to incur a fee? Do you think that maybe businesses need to take a little bit of ownership and go, right, well, we don't fully understand, you know, what, what would implement a fine or a cost or a fee. And we need to sort of, manage our internal processes more there's so many angles to this but i mean what's your view uh francis let's go with you first what, what's your take on wise i sort of agree with all the points you raised there tyler i think you know initially the response is that that banks have been sort of cheeky here trying to like hide fees and and sort of try and what's the word sort of drain these smbs of of funds that they shouldn't really be having to pay so initially, my response was it's the banks that are at fault because they're just sort of preying on, on on smaller businesses, right? But then the more I think about it, the more it's like there are there they are hidden fees, sure, but there is a there is a way to see them. It's not like they're they're coming out of nowhere. So in that regard, I think you know maybe 
maybe it's just the SMBs do need to take a closer look. And I mean, of course, when you're doing sort of these huge international transactions and stuff, I'm sure you need to put resources towards that to to ensure that everything is compliant and stuff. And I think perhaps SMBs don't have the resources to properly, I don't want to say fact check, but make sure that, they, that they're not being sort of taken advantage of. And then similarly, you know, the third point that you raised about regulators having to do more. I mean, the regulations are there. That was what was made clear by WISE is that the regulations are in place. They're just being ignored. So perhaps that it, there needs to be a, a bigger fine or a bigger sort of punishment for, for organizations that aren't abiding with it. I mean, ultimately, when you look at how much money was taken, 3.6 billion, I think, is a ridiculous amount. And it really does hinder businesses from going global, which is sort of something that you mentioned. And sure, maybe going global is a bit of a, a big aspiration at first, but I think it needs to, you need to have that aspiration in order to have a successful business. And I think banks are really hindering that and creating obstacles that don't necessarily need to be there. So yeah, I think, especially when you look at sort of what WISE has done, like globally, I, I know that you you published an article in November last year, sort of discussing about, you know, how Hong Kong is there there's no more hidden fees in i believe it was czar bank or za bank i'm not sure how how to pronounce it but they wise made it clear that you know hidden fees weren't allowed anymore um so perhaps you know that could be in, introduced over here i don't know exactly sort of the ins and outs of it but yeah ultimately i think there is more onus on the banks to be more transparent and in 2023 i thought transparency was something that was made abundantly clear so you know goes to show that there's still stuff that I need to be learning and, and, and cleaning up on because there's clearly a lot of cheek still happening, if you will. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, if we look at the figures, 3.6, as you said, is a, is a massive, massive figure, but the overall total was only 4.2 billion. So I think, I mean, one thing I wrote in the report is that it's more expensive to go global than to maintain a global presence. And I think I think that's a little bit of what's happening here is that you have smaller companies who don't necessarily have the processes to manage international trade. Polly, I mean, I see you're, you're, you're sort of nodding your head there. I mean, what's your, what's your take on this story? I mean, yeah, I agree with everything that Francis just said, really, and as well as everything you said, Tyler. I think this is a really good example of why some sort of big banks have that kind of stereotype of being evil right there's always been that kind of like evil banker uh thing floating around that's just trying to squeeze all your money out um i always think about the you know the scene in the mary poppins movie when they try and take the tuppence off of off of the kid i don't know if anyone else will remember that but like there's always been kind of that stereotype of of evil banker and that's obviously not totally true in a lot of scenarios but i think situations like this make you go oh okay maybe that's why um banks have that sort of air around them i think it's it's really awful really just the difference in how much is taken off of small and medium-sized businesses compared to large businesses i'd be really interested to see almost like a, a breakdown of you know what percentage of the uk is uh sme what percentage of the uk is a large business and see how that compares to then how much you know, the 3.6 compared to the 600 million. That would be very interesting to me. And also how many businesses are in that, like that six point, sorry, that 3.6 billion is divided by how many businesses? Because I think 
that would be a really interesting figure to know. But <clears throat> I think harking back to your question, Tyler, like who who is it that needs to sort of be thinking about these things, the banks, the regulators, all the businesses themselves? I, I do think it's a, a mix of everyone. You know, obviously being a business, you kind of need to understand what it is that you're doing and and look at all the information provided to you. But if that information isn't being provided to you, I think that's the issue there, right? Like if they're not being transparent and if the banks aren't sharing all the information, then that's just a massive hindrance. And that's really going to affect small businesses in in trying to grow, which ultimately, you know, most small businesses want to do. They want to grow, they want to get bigger and they want to succeed in their vision, whatever the vision might be. And I think it's just a bit, uh, it's just not great of the banks to be like, charging hidden fees and just hidden fees in general i think are just awful whether we're talking about in this context of like banking and small businesses or just like generally in life hidden fees are just the worst um and i think it's i think you know it was interesting um in the article you had some comments from harsh sinner i hope that's how you say his name who is uh, from wise and he said expecting banks to change might be a romantic idea and I don't think it is a romantic idea. I really think that banks should change. That's the whole point, right? That's the whole reason fintech kind of is here and making things competitive. We always talk about sort of challenges versus traditionals and, and things like that. And banks need to change. And I think this is one prime example of the way that a bank needs to change. Um, and the regulator needs to be, you know, right along with them, keeping keeping track of situations like this, because it's just, it's just not great for anyone involved, really. No, I, there are improvements that that need to be made across the board. I I fully agree with you. I'm I'm sort of on the side of the banks, if anything. I don't know. I yeah. I think they're doing so much with, especially to mention you know the FCA in in the article. The FCA is doing so much with the consumer duty at the moment, which is really like a pioneering transparency in the banking industry. Let's see if some of that transparency will be extended to uh, foreign exchange. I mean, I certainly hope so. But I am on the side of the banks, but I do agree with all of you lot in saying that there are there are like areas for improvement across the board. Um, so it's very, very, very interesting, but we could discuss this all day. <laughs> um, let's let's go for the, the filling of our banking sandwich, shall we? Francis, wh- why don't we move on to your story? Yeah, cheers, Tyler. I think that is... I don't want to say it's a controversial take to be on the side of the banks, but, you know, I'm just going to leave that out there for the listeners to to decide. But... <laughs> you know me. I love <laughs> yeah. a little bit of controversy. Just play devil's advocate. That's all it is. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, that, that's me. That's me. So the article that I wanted to discuss today comes from Livemore, which, I, if I'm being honest, it took me ages to actually realize that that's how you pronounce it. Because for it, when I was initially reading the article, I kept saying Livemore. And yeah, no. You know, the way this actually reads, it makes more sense to be Livemore. So Livemore is creating a, so- a social bond framework to combat ageist barriers to lending. And I wanted to bring this forward because it was something that I found really interesting. You know, I think longtime listeners of the podcast will will notice that, you know, we as a podcast, as sort of people in the industry, we like discussing new means of financial inclusion and you know almost ways of financial justice because we like to highlight how organizations are ensuring that everyone gets equal treatment and i think as well it's something that probably goes under the radar a little bit is that that's extremely important for both consumers and merchants it's a win-win and i think a lot of the time when when you hear about financial inclusion you just think of like 
you know, the, the consumers being the ultimate winners because they're being included. But ultimately, I wouldn't say that's the case. I think, you know, merchants now have a bigger customer pool. And, and I think that's something that's really important. And I think borrowers are, or, and sort of, or sorry, lenders are, are really missing out on, a, on, a, on an opportunity here because, you know, currently the way that the, the mortgage and lending process works is that it is based on your, the sole assessment of your salary and it doesn't include other things like passive income, sort of like a pension, for example. So it really works against applicants between the ages of 50 and 90. And as a result, these these people, they often need to, to forsake other assets such as property in order to, to get the funds that they need to apply for these um, for these mortgages and stuff. So I think ultimately we're already starting to see uh, a missed opportunity from merchants, for example, and sort of lenders because they're already limiting their customer pool. Now, what Livemore is doing is they've created a social bond framework which aims to essentially give these people who otherwise wouldn't, or these borrowers, I should say, who previously wouldn't be given any any money because, because of their status of being old, I suppose. It's giving them the opportunity to actually have have this money that they can borrow and sort of take out to put towards their mortgages. And I think... You know, I think when when you consider how how impactful this is, it really is impactful because this is like a, a social bond framework seeks to issue a social bond in a very similar way to how green bonds finance green projects. Social bonds aim to finance a particular social project. However, one of the big things that needs to be noted with a social bond is that the purpose must be measurable and predefined. So, for instance, if someone uses social bonds to fund the creation of new jobs, they need to determine this, the end result beforehand. And it's this latter point that sets social social bonds apart from generic uh, securities. So ultimately, I, w- I wanted to bring this forward just to sort of discuss, you know, the the application process and sort of the accessibility of funds and lending services and sort of how, I guess it almost ties in really with, you know, Tyler's article in this idea that we think that banks are really forward thinking and that they are making these these changes and because you hear about fintechs, right, and the, the impact that they're having. And similarly, you'd think, oh, the lending process, you, you hear about how quick they are now, how the process on for applying for a loan has gone from from months and weeks to sort of hours or minutes even to get sort of a quote. And I think when you really think about that, you you can get disillusioned that things are very forward thinking. And I think it's really important to highlight things like Livemore. And I think another big point of Livemore as well is that the it's been backed or it's social frame, uh, social bond framework, sorry, has been backed with a partnership by Trillion Trees and the lenders work with the global reforestation project will see a tree planted for every mortgage it sells, thus offsetting its carbon emissions in the process. And again, this is just something that's really, really important considering the importance of ESG in our modern climate so yeah i think that's really what i wanted to bring to the table today to discuss with you guys just to get your views really on sort of i suppose the lending landscape and the accessibility of it is this something that surprises you or or is this sort of what you expected really because like i mentioned um, again it's probably naivety on my behalf but it never really occurred to me perhaps because i haven't got to that point in my life myself but you know the the mortgage application process can be very selective in in, in who who lenders want to give money to. So I wanted to get your thoughts, uh, Polly. I'll go to you first. 
the mortgage uh, landscape does not surprise me at all because I have been through it and it is hell. Uh, definitely, um, especially sort of as a as a younger person, I guess. Um, it was, I mean, from from personal experience, we had a situation where me and my other half were looking to buy a house and we got rejected uh, from our mortgage because basically our pay slips didn't necessarily accurate not not a pace of sorry our my partner's contract was only for like two days a week or something like that but he actually worked five days a week he just wasn't contracted and so even though we had the pay slips to say he was making this much money and this was how he watched because his contract didn't match up that meant his income wasn't like secure so therefore we couldn't get a mortgage because they were like well you don't have the money to pay back even though we did um so that was a nightmare and I really think that something like this would be fantastic. And I just love the idea of different alternative um, financing opportunities, different alternative like loan opportunities. And I think particularly this will be something that will be very useful for our generation when we get older, if that makes any sense at all. Because I know there's kind of like the perception, right, that when you're in like your 50s, your 60s, you've kind of you've got your house and you own it outright because you've been paying off a mortgage for the past 30 years you know like you in your 20s you bought the house you got married you had kids and now you're 50 60 your kids have moved out and now you own your house because you've been paying x amount a month every month for 30 years another house is yours whereas obviously it's very different kind of economic landscape now than it was 30 years ago so a lot of people our age aren't really buying houses and a lot of people older than us aren't really buying houses because no one could really afford to mainly because mortgages are terrible and really difficult to get, even though they're supposed to be doing a function. But anyway, I'm just bitter because getting my mortgage was incredibly difficult. Um, so, yeah, I think when we get older, our generation gets older, you know, I think there's going to be a lot more people looking to buy. Um, so having something like this is fantastic and a really great option. And I think just just in general, let, let's just have more alternative finance options, right? Like more options, the better. Let's let's just get everything on the table so we can all have a look and see what the best is and i also really like um the emphasis on the partnership with trillion trees because we love um a green mortgage product and a, a green financing product because that's always great um but no social bonds social lending it's something that i've been sort of reading about for a fair amount of time now in, in various different ways um, and this Livermore one is, is a really interesting one. And I've heard a few other sort of ways of doing it as well, specifically in um, housing and buying a house. Uh, so I hope, yeah, I hope we see more of it. I mean, well, there you go. The first hand impact of the mortgage landscape being an absolute pain. Uh, Tyler, what are your thoughts? You know, I really, really love this initiative from Livermore slash Livemore slash Livemore. um we've seen we've seen green bonds work extremely well in in the industry in certain ways in in targeting certain initiatives and delivering certain outcomes i think the use of social bonds within this circumstance is quite fascinating really i mean if we look at the lending process and the lending industry as a whole you can you can understand why there's a little bit of hesitancy from banks to lend to the older demographic mainly due to I, I well I guess soaring house prices and you know things like inflation it, you they have to take into account okay well what is the likelihood that we're going to get this money back I mean this, is this a safe investment and I I really agree with Polly that I feel like their assessment of sort of like a cookie cutter assessment of 
just your sole salary is is really working against people in certain aspects. I liked this social um, bond story and initiative. I thought it I thought it would do more to to bring more people into mortgages, which is fantastic. But I would also like to see, and we are seeing it in fact, the use of wider technology within credit assessments and lending assessments and specifically the use of open banking. I mean, had they been using open banking in police assessment of a, of a mortgage, they would have seen, oh, well, you know, they're making uh, actually making X amount of income per month. And, that, and so they are able to afford this, this mortgage. But because I, I, well, I'm assuming that that wasn't the case and they just sort of took it as it was, you know, from face value. I think that I, I'd like to see social bonds like this and social initiative like like this sort of be powered a bit more by leading technology and specifically open banking. Um, but you know what? Yeah, you know, on the face of it, I think this is really good from Livemore. And as Polly said, I, I really like the uh, the trillion trees um, aspect to it as well. I thought that was really nice. So yeah, what, what are your thoughts on the story, Francis? Well, like I said, really, I think it's always nice for us to highlight things that are financially inclusive and aren't sort of just, I mean, I don't want to keep being the same drum here and sort of say, you know, like, oh, it's fantastic. But it, I mean, it is, it, it creates more options for people. Like Polly said, having this now creates options for the younger generations in the future, because these organizations are only going to see success, the sort of the methodologies that they have and sort of the ideas behind them are only going to continue to grow, hopefully, and I don't see why they wouldn't. So I think this is just only going to create more options. And I think that it might be a hot take this, but I don't think it is. It's just that you cannot oversaturate sort of the market with different options. I think the more options, the better. I don't think there's ever going to be a point where it's going to be, oh, we have too many options. Do you know what I mean? So I think, yeah, I think I really like the what Live More have done. And I think that, you know, hopefully it's successful and more people are able to apply for mortgages. But let's finish off with our final article today from Polly. Thank you, Francis. Um, so, yeah, my article today was looking uh, at findings from Tink, uh, who found that almost half of the people in the UK are only just managing um, in terms of their finances, where their income is not covering their essential spending. And the cost of living crisis is just kind of really affecting people in a very negative way. Um, so I think this was an interesting, uh, stat. I mean, interesting stats, obviously it's, it's not great to be, to be reading things like this and it's all not necessarily a surprise as obviously we, we've been hearing a lot about the cost of living crisis for a while now and how it's sort of affecting different people in different ways. But I think what I liked here and what I thought would be interesting to discuss today was the critical role of banks in this scenario in order to support people with their finances during you know these unprecedented times so obviously a lot of people have have to resort to very extreme measures in order to get by um 25 of people define themselves as only just managing and have sold possessions to make cash and 27 percent have used their savings to cover living expenses so i think what's clear is that there's an appetite from consumers for products services and tools that will help them improve their finances. Um, so 22% of those who are only just managing would like their bank to actively demonstrate which providers offer better deals and where they can save money. Uh, a similar amount would also like their financial providers to suggest where they could be spending less each month. So I thought this was interesting. And then, of course, 44% of people 
um, said that they would swap banks if it would help them save. And that's obviously a, a massive number, like nearly half. And the UK's current account switching service, uh, CAS, reported a record quarter for bank account switching, um, which is clear that more people than ever are willing to move their money for a better deal. And so I just, I just thought this was really interesting to me. And I think it would be a really good opportunity to sort of discuss kind of what um, products and services banks offer and what you guys think that perhaps a bank can offer to make it, you know, really stick out to people who are perhaps struggling at this time. Because I know, you know, several different banks offer sort of like money tracking services, uh, things like that. A lot of um, sort of the more challenger banks like Starling, I know, does it. Um, offer like roundups where every time you spend it like squirrel a little bit of money away into like a savings pot for you um things like that so i mean i'd just be really interested to know uh a what you thought about sort of bank switching uh in general which is obviously a lot easier now than it was a few years ago with the switching service and um, but also kind of what features do you think banks should be offering at this moment in time and and do you think banks are doing enough i guess maybe which is probably quite a big question but let's go with it anyway um but francis what do you think i think i'm going to be playing a little bit of devil's advocate here and say that you know perhaps the onus isn't necessarily on the banks but the consumers and again i'm all i'm all about the hot takes today but i think that you know financial services generally speaking do quite a good job of you know offering services that are money saving services they might not be massively you know with these huge savings but mo- i think most places do have some form of you know we'll set a money aside or something along those lines now about sort of changing services or changing providers and changing banks i think that is well within the realm of reality right now i think that is something that's very possible with the cost of living crisis you know i think people are very very willing to sort of say look I'm going to go with what's best for me and ultimately I think that's the the right attitude to have I think you do need to have this attitude of I'm going to think about number one however I don't I think there has to be an onus on the consumers themselves to say what can you do for me and not expect banks to just sort of what's the what's the phrase that I'm looking for sort of like give a handout essentially of a saving service because you know I think I think the onus has to be on the consumer. And I feel like a lot of the time people say, oh, you know, I don't have a service that's going to help me save or this, that and the other. When in reality, it's they're not really going out of their way to find it. They're just expecting it to be sort of spoon fed to them. That's the phrase I was looking for, spoon fed. And I think, you know, again, this perhaps is playing a bit of devil's advocate. It might be a hot take, whatever. But I think that, you know, this is something that needs to be considered quite highly. But on the flip side, I also see it, very much being possible and ultimately something i would do you know if if i saw that another bank was gonna sort of say look you could save so much more by doing this this or this we offer this your current bank doesn't i'm sold really at the end of the day you see the options that are available to you and you pick what's best for you that creates a more competitive market and ultimately i think that's just a a win for the for the industry yeah, that is an interesting take, Francis. Whether it's a hot take, I don't know, but it's certainly interesting. I think I get what you're saying, but in the same breath, I do think it it's not necessarily a case of people expecting banks to fix everything. At least that's not the way I see it. I think it's more just, hey, banks, why don't you provide some cool services and we'll all enjoy them and save money together, um, possibly. But no, an interesting, interesting thought there for sure. Tyler, what do you think? I think banks need to be offering cheaper foreign exchange services. 
uh, just to keep it in line with my story. I think um, I think that the, at least in the UK and the US, for example, there's been really good work to diversify the market and the level of competition within the banking industry. I think now more than ever, consumers have a, an abundance of options and abundance of choices to choose between banks. Maybe they want to go with Neo, neo banks, maybe we want to go with incumbent banks. What we have been seeing in the industry so far, especially in the wake of the economic turmoil, is that people are sort of returning or sort of creeping back to their incumbent banks after the challenger banks enjoyed quite a dominant period during the pandemic. Now, with the economic turmoil, people are sort of creeping back towards the trusted services of the incumbents. In terms of what they're offering, I, I I agree with what Francis part of what Francis said in that you know I think banks are highly reactive to to the needs of their customers at the moment. Um, I think in in light of the current economic situation, I think yes, it's saving saving services and particularly particularly wealth tech services uh, or investment services will will really take a bank's forward. I mean, we've seen this in, um, deployed successfully in Revolut, for example, um, who sort of like a modular app can, can really give customers a little bit of everything, which I really liked. Um, of course, there is this giant push to digital now. So I think even if you have the best services in the world, if they're not being properly translated into like a digital interface, i.e. an app, that that's really going to act as a hindrance to banks right now um, because it's not just challenger banks, it's digital banking and every bank can engage in digital banking. And I think one one sort of make or break moment for a bank's reputation among consumers is how well their, their uh, features are supported within an app personally. Uh, but it's, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different angles to this argument. Yeah, that's a really interesting point too as well, Tyler. I think it's just it's one of those things where there's there's no right answer, right? And and I guess that's that's the kind of thing that we talk about today. Um, but anyway, let's let's move on. Thank you so much for bringing that discussion uh, to us today. Uh, if the you the listener want to hear any more about what we've talked about today or anything else about the fintech world, head on over to thefintechtimes.com where you can read plenty more news and insights all about fintech. Um, But let's quickly do what I learned this week. So each week, so much new information and news and insights across our desks, being on the editorial team, that we are learning something new about fintech all the time. So we thought it'd be fun to share that with you guys. Um, So Francis, what have you learned this week? So this week I learned that Kraken, one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world, really, it's had its staking service banned in the US. And this has been met with some huge, uh, what's the word right that I'm looking for? Uh, it's not been a very popular move, to say backlash. the least. And yeah, it's may- been met with huge backlash. And I think I was going to say controversy, but yeah, it- it's not be- it's not being received well. And I think what I found most interesting about it was that, in fact, the I believe it was the head of the SEC, as it was the SEC's decision to 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 ban the service. It was oh sorry, the SEC's commissioner Hester Pierce publicly rebuked her own agency over the shutdown of crypto exchanges, Kraken crypto staking program in the US. And I thought that was very interesting that there's been disagreement with one of the biggest regulators in the US. That is interesting. Thank you, Francis. Tyler, what have you learned this week? Okay, well, this is a bit of a long shot, but I did see it in the editor inbox. It still counts. 
but ni almost 95 years after the character's creation, Disney are on the precipice of losing the copyright over their famed character, Mickey Mouse. Uh, as you all know, Mickey Mouse came into being on the 1st of October, 1928. And thanks to the Copyright Act of 1976, the, the well, Disney's control over the character is going to expire next year, which also coincides with, with my, uh, the launch of my Mickey Mouse t-shirt and mug business. So what, what are the chances? But yeah, they're going to lose the copyright. So I, I know that's not really, that's probably a fintech angle there somewhere. <laughs> But I, I thought I thought that was just what I learned this week was quite interesting. Where? Where is the angle? <laughs> I did notice you were wearing a Mickey Mouse watch today. What? Um, God, the stars are aligned. I was going to comment on it after we finished recording, but it seems relevant to comment on it now, even though Mickey Mouse isn't relevant at all. The the Mickey Mouse copyright thing is actually really interesting if you like look at it a lot but anyway it doesn't matter yeah um, <laughs> yes, that's what i learned <laughs> well moving swiftly on what did you learn you Polly? i can't wait uh, for mickey mouse to announce he is going to be a, a fintech influencer next year that's that's very exciting that's which it. fintech is going to take him on as a mascot who, who can tell you <laughs> Uh, mine's also a tiny bit of a cop-out this week, uh, but what I learned is that the Fintech Times has launched a brand new Friday roundup that everyone should go and read. Uh, so we have started doing a Fintech Fridays, which is a weekly fix of products, news and deals. So kind of just a, a look at sort of the consumer offers uh, around that have been launched in that week and sort of a shopping list of all the exciting things that you can go and have a look at in the fintech world. Uh, so that's very exciting. That's every Friday. So you should go and have a look at it. And that that ends my shameless plug. Um, but no, thank you guys so much uh, for joining me this week. It has been fantastic to talk to you both about fintech and Mickey Mouse. Uh, so it's been great fun and I'll catch you on the next one. Catch you in the next one, guys. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the News and Views podcast by the Fintech Times. Don't miss next week's episode and continue the conversations using hashtag TFT News and Views and follow us at the Fintech Times.